welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and I know that wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between author, broadcaster, and entrepreneur Mark Sutcliffe, who's the host of Digging Deep podcast, and Damon Santola, director of the Network Dynamics Group at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of the bestseller, Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. Drawing on deep yet accessible research and fascinating examples from the spread of coronavirus to the success of Black Lives Matter movement, the failure of Google+, and the rise of political polarization, Change presents groundbreaking and paradigm-shifting new science for understanding what drives change and how we can change the world around us. Here's their conversation. Damon, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, There's so many interesting revelations in it and lessons, and I'm really excited to chat with you about it. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. I'm happy to be part of the festival. So I think one of the key lessons here is that ideas don't spread and, and change doesn't spread the way we've often thought it does. And I wonder, like at a broad level, I, th- I think we're always discovering new things about the way our brains work and the way we function as a species. And it, it sort of disproves all the assumptions we have. Is this an example of kind of how we misunderstand ourselves and and how how we function as individuals and as groups? Yeah, it's... Um... It, it is in some ways, but it, it goes sort of beyond uh, our individuals, you know, sort of experience. And it really revolutionizes the science of understanding uh, people and society and how societies change. Um, and so one of the kind of key things to understand about the book is that the reason I wrote it is because in the last 15 years, the science has changed radically. Um, most of the theories that we have intuitively have been around since the 1940s. And they make sense intuitively. They seem they seem reasonable, um, but we've never been able to study society as a whole. Most of the social science we do is to study individuals one at a time, and then to try to infer what you know social change looks like or how it happens. And we've never been able to do basically experiments at the at the sort of population level. And that's sort of the thing that I've been able to do um, with a sort of large web experiment and then translate that into some of the studies I talk about in the book implemented these ideas, like for the country of Malawi, over 200 villages implementing these strategies. And so the fact that we can do that kind of science now gives us um, really a, a new understanding of exactly how networks operate and what social change looks like. And I can, I can say more about that, but I'll take a pause for a moment. Yeah. But what I, what I find fascinating about it, though, is that we, we just seem to make these assumptions. Um, and for example, we think information is what people need to make better decisions. And, and that's not really what's going on, right? So anytime we say, oh, if, if we just gave people more information, if we just gave more education, that that, that would change people's minds or they'd behave differently, that's, that's not what's at the heart of, of how we act and how we make decisions, right? Yeah, and I think one of the biggest sort of classical assumptions, um, and this really honestly dates all the way back to the Enlightenment, um, is, is that if you just gave people the right information, they would be rational actors and make the right choice. Um, and there's been a, you know, a, a 
slew of books in the last two decades talking about sort of cognitive biases and how that works at the individual level. Um, but it also affects the way that our social networks operate and the way that it works like collectively for entire, you know, populations and for nations. And um, the intuition that we've typically used when thinking about information spreading is that it basically spreads like a virus, right? I learn a piece of information from you and you tell it to somebody else. And the assumption is that by learning that piece of information, I now will change my behavior, right? And so there's this sort of equation that says learning a new fact is the same thing as believing that fact and then changing your behavior based on that fact. And of course, it you know a cursory glance at society tells us that's not true, right? There are lots of facts about face masks, about the pandemic, about vaccination, and and of course, you know, before two years ago about lots of other things like climate change and so forth that are distributed throughout society. But what winds up happening is the social networks around us kind of shape how that information is interpreted. And so one of the big moves in my work that, that it really sort of, um, per, you know, permeates the book is that when we talk about social networks, we have traditionally thought about them essentially as pipes. They're like these conduits for transmission from person to person. And that works pretty well for talking about diseases, and it works pretty well for talking about information. But when it comes to changing beliefs and behaviors, social networks really act as these prisms. They kind of refract and color the ideas and the behaviors that we're exposed to, and they determine whether or not we think those are good ideas or we reject them as, as bad ideas. And so our whole sort of experience socially is doing much more work to determine what we actually do and, and the change that we actually make than just the information we have access to. So before we go any further, can you define the concept of a social network? Like, what is that? Is that our? Is it kind of our peer group? Is it? Is it something more than that? Yeah, and the way we typically talk about social networks is in terms of like me personally and the people I know, right? Um, and so the way that we study it now scientifically is to say, okay, well, the people you know also know a bunch of people, some of whom you know, but many of whom you don't, and then of course those people know people, and so on and so forth, and we're. We're sort of more familiar with these ideas now because of, you know, Facebook and online media sites where we can kind of conceptualize that there's some massive web, right? Um, but where the science gets really interesting is that we can actually take that, you know, massive interconnected pattern of connections um, and characterize it uh, statistically in ways that are really predictive of how behaviors and ideas will spread. And so we can identify these like crucial features that me personally looking at like the people I know, I can't see any of these features because they exist in this sort of massive interconnected web. But um, when we look at a larger scale, we can say this population actually will successfully adopt this kind of innovation and this one likely won't. And that gives us a really new way of talking about things like where to target an innovation or a new product or an idea or how to sort of grow support for a new public health campaign or how to grow support for a new political candidate, right? And one of the big insights from the book is that we tend to focus a lot on what we talk about now as influencers. But this concept actually, like I said, it dates back to the 1940s. It's a concept that like there are some people who have a lot of social connections. <laughs> so you look at like their personal network is very large. And the, que the question is, well, where are they in the scope of the entire web? And they tend to be more towards the center. And so when we think about, you know, how to initiate change, um, the classic idea has been, well, you get those people, the influencers, 
to adopt something and then it'll spread from them to lots of people they know and then to other people and so on and so forth. Again, that works really well for um, things like gossip about celebrities or you know new brands of coconut water. Um, but really what the, the new um, science has taught us is that when it comes to disruptive products that like change the way that we think or that or they're sort of our normal routines um, or new political campaigns or social movements for things like sustainability or race and gender equity, all of a sudden the power centers in the network move out towards the edges and the periphery where sort of regular people live. And those tend to be the places where we see almost all large social changes originating. And so it sort of turns our concept of what networks are and how they operate on its head. So we'll come back to that issue of the periphery in a moment, but does that sort of suggest that the people in my immediate world have more of an impact on the choices I make, like for example, who I'm gonna vote for or whether I'm going to uh, see a vaccine as a life-changing, you know, life-saving medical uh, intervention or see it as some sort of threat or conspiracy. Uh, the, those people immediately around me have more influence on that than, than sort of famous people or experts or, or that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And it's hard for us to know this stuff without studying it. Um, if we were to interview a bunch of people, and we have done this historically, where we compare the interviews of what people say they'll do versus what you know the data show when we actually look at something being adopted, the two don't line up. Um, and so we've got a kind of a picture of our behavior that's consistent with kind of um, a simpler model of like people and how they act. And it's like me and the information I have access to and maybe a celebrity I know. But what's really going on is that it's not just that sort of um, high profile person who's influencing you. It's all your neighbors and all the people you interact with and their behaviors, which aren't really being cognitively registered. You're not truly aware of it, but they're sort of invisibly influencing you. And one of the sort of the key to, oh, sorry, please go ahead. No, I was just going to say, does that explain why, you know, you can have uh a group of people who, you know, we've just gone through a period of political division, obviously, in the United States, uh, where you can have a group of people who have obviously similar education, similar, maybe even circumstances in their life, but they're polar opposites in terms of who they're voting for, and they can't understand why the other party, why the other group is voting for a different party. Is that, does that help to explain that? Yeah, it does. And um, what's interesting about this is that those factors, the way in which your social network kind of operates on your um, understanding of the world, are um, factors that can be, for lack of a better word, manipulated, which is to say by creating a slightly different network interaction, by shaping the sort of experience or the context in which people interact, you can actually change the quality of their sort of receptiveness to new ideas um, and their engagement with people sort of across the political aisle. And that was one of the biggest revelations for me. I, I talk in the book about um, a study we did on uh, climate change data, where we gave the data to Democrats, Republicans. And of course, you see this sort of uh, striking polarization in their interpretation of what the data are actually saying. And that's, again, to the point of just giving people accurate information doesn't actually change what they believe. And so Republicans looked at the data and said, well, there's no problem. Arctic sea ice is actually going back up. And Democrats look at the same data and say, well, this is a huge problem because Arctic sea ice is going down. 
So the question is, well, how can like well-educated, reasonable, smart people look at the same thing and come away with the opposite conclusion? Um, and the answer is that, you know, we're kind of framing all the time what we believe and what we think based on the people around us and how we interpret their ideas and their beliefs. And so what we did was sort of change the social networks people interacted with, but also change the sort of stimuli they were seeing. Like, were they seeing, you know, donkeys and elephants and, you know, political logos that created a sort of a context of tribal loyalty and competition, um, or would you remove all of that and just create kind of a, a space that was specifically designed for democratic discourse? And the results were like completely the opposite. Just by changing those features of how people interacted and how they experienced each other, you could change their understanding of what the data were actually saying and what they ultimately believed about, you know, trends in climate change. Wow. So we could talk more in a few minutes about what this means in terms of if you want to create change, how to do it. Um, right. What, what do you think is at the heart of that, though? Is it is it our need for safety that that, you know, we we need to feel, you know, like we're we're aligned with the people closest to us and we feel we're worried about stepping out, uh, stepping out of bounds with that group? Is there is that sort of kind of is it a form of peer pressure? Is it something like that? Yeah, there, the different reasons why we resist uh, behavior change or, or ideas that are unfamiliar. Um, and one, as you're bringing up, can be the question of legitimacy, which is to say, is there some social risk with doing this thing? Um, that if I do it, uh, I'll be you know, either um, repudiated by my group or I'll just experience less social approval than I'm used to, and I don't like that. Um, and we're, this is one of the places where social media is so interesting because this effect of peer approval is actually playing a huge role on the things people do on social media. A great example of this is the spread of support for marriage equality in the U.S. There was this huge campaign right before the Supreme Court met to hear the case. And um, there's this story of uh, this remarkable social contagion where support for same-sex marriage in the form of changing your Facebook profile to a, a red and pink equal sign to show that you were supporting it, um, spread to 2.7 million people in a week, which is the largest cascade in Facebook's history. It's, it's an impressive social campaign. Um, but what's interesting about it is that um, it didn't spread like a virus, which which is interesting because it sounds like that's obviously a case of something gone viral. Um, but uh, the way that it spread was that people would see it and then they would look to see what their other contacts were doing because they were self-conscious about adopting something that had some sort of social risk or was potentially contentious in their neighborhood because people could reply to them. People might think you know, badly of them, or people might start a fight on their Facebook page. And so they waited till several of their contacts adopted until they got this sort of, you know, what I referred to as a complex contagion, this sort of reinforcement that created a sense of comfort and social legitimacy, and then they adopted. And that's how the, the entire thing spread across the Facebook network. Um, but in addition to the, the point you brought up about legitimacy, there are other reasons why we might not adopt things right away. Um, and another reason is just sheer credibility, which is like, is this thing safe? If you're thinking about buying a new product for your child, right? You're not thinking about people's opinion of you. You just want to know whether it's safe. And this is where the concept of like social proof comes in. Like seeing more people who you like and trust adopt it um, makes you feel more confident. Now, an influencer may be paid to endorse that product, um, but you are probably going to pay attention to the other parents that you know and know that have you know good parenting decisions before you actually buy it for your own child. And this is where the social networks around us are playing a disproportionate role. 
importantly, if you know that the other parents in your community know about this product and none of them are using it, that implicitly, even though no one tells you not to use it, that implicitly becomes a reason why you wouldn't use it. Yeah, so it, it suggests to me that uh, that saturation. If you're trying to if you're trying to spread an idea or a product, that saturation matters, right? You're better off having three people uh, out of a group of five excited and using this product and influencing other people in their networks than having three people out of a group of a hundred uh, sort of ex who might be spread out more disparately. Is that the case? Yeah, I, I think that's that's often true. There are some, you know, out you know, special cases, uh, like for example, an urban legend, where for an urban legend, um, you may not be paying attention to the non-adopters because you may just assume they don't know about it. And so if you hear a confirmation from like three or four people, that may just convince you. Um, but for anything that you pretty much assume people know about, then yeah, that's where the the people who aren't adopting um, become significant influences. And this is actually a, a really subtle and incredibly important point for things like product marketing or social campaigns, because what it means, um, and I have stories in the book about Google, like massively failing, <laughs> shooting itself in the foot because they didn't understand this concept. What they did was a massive broadcast. They let everyone in the world know about their product. And then it was conspicuous that no one was using it. Right. right. This was Google glass, um, right? The, the glasses that, that, or, or is it, or is this the example of the, of the, uh, their social media? Google, yeah. Google plus Google yeah. plus. Okay. Yeah. You do talk about yeah, yeah. Google glass too, right? So yeah, Google glass. They're, so they're, they're failures, um, both, uh, of different strategies right. that are the kind of classic strategies. And, um, I, I think Google's a great company, but it sort of stands out because like there are a lot of smart people there. Um, and they made these like massive mistakes and glass yeah. obviously failed. That was the attempt to use like the influencer strategy. Um, right. and Google plus was the attempt to use like viral, like basically, um, carpeting the social world in their new technology. And then realizing that that actually backfired for people's adoption of their technology. Because people were aware of Google plus, but nobody seemed to be using it. So therefore it must be terrible, right? Yeah, people were aware of it. And they also were aware that everyone else was aware of it because they what they did is they kind of forced people to have Google Plus. It was part of your Gmail account or it was part of your YouTube account. Yeah. Right. And so um, because it was ubiquitous almost instantly, then the slow ramp up and adoption actually became a detractor for people who were considering switching from Facebook. And then Google, you know, Google Plus ultimately failed. It closed its doors in 2019. Um, so it's a, a really, I think, illuminating case of how the kind of intuitive strategies really don't work um, when we're moving into these sort of spaces of social and behavioral change. Yeah, and as you point out, the the reason uh, it's it's relevant and powerful to use an example like Google is because they have all this heft behind them, right? So if 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 even right. Google can't be successful with something like that, it it proves your your point because they certainly have the the resources and the network and the contacts to to make a a concept or an idea or a product spread. So if they if it doesn't work when they do it, then it's definitely something wrong. Yes, and I would say that you know I I use these examples and I sort of, you know, poke a little fun at Google in the book, but they, I think, received them well and have reached out to me about <laughs> doing some of their work on political polarization now in a way that's more sensitive to, you know, the, the nice. social science that's effective. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's another thing that's counterintuitive that you bring up is the idea that, that, you know, all you need is influencers or early adopters, but that, that doesn't always work, right? 
Yeah. And the real question is, how are those people who are your sort of early adopters located in the social network? Um, and the story is going to keep coming back again and again to this basic, you know, conceptual distinction between uh, what I call a simple contagion, which is basically something that spreads virally, and a complex contagion, which is something that spreads socially. And the, you know, the strategies you use for these two different kinds of contagions are like almost the opposite. And this is why it has such a big uh, impact on our thinking across so many different domains from public health to like, you know, social technology marketing. Um, really, any time that your strategy is based on spreading a viral contagion, then you want to get as much exposure as fast as possible. Um, but for a complex contagion, all that exposure, as I was just describing, can backfire. And so you really want to build a strategy where you kind of cluster your innovators or your change agents together so that in addition to trying to convince other people, they can actually support each other to maintain this new behavior. Um, and it's certainly ironic from the perspective of viral marketing, right? It would be like having a bunch of telemarketers call each other. Like what would be the point, right? But by connecting your change agents together, you basically create a cluster that grows into a critical mass of support. And as that critical mass kind of flows through the network, then the pattern of connection I was describing earlier plays a huge role in like how it spreads from one cluster to another and grows across communities until eventually, and this is sort of where I get at the end of the book, is talking about tipping points, is at some point your cluster grows large enough that you actually can tip the rest of the society in a very effective way. Yeah, and um, what you brought up there, I think, leads to another point, which is you you don't just want people to hear the idea or the or or know about the product. You want it to stick, right? So that that there's a reinforcing that happens within your social network that 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 creates longevity for the idea or the product, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that um, the way that we've been taught to talk about. Um, you know, commitment or, you know, continued engagement with a product or, you know, a, a new behavior um, is to think about it in terms of features of the product or the behavior. So if you just design the product the right way, then people will, you know, keep using it. Um, but uh, there's, you know, the dustbins of history are full of examples where that's not true. Um, so the strategy of uh, focusing on the product, again, it makes sense because it's, conceptually easy to understand. It's something I, I can look at the product and I can keep tweaking it. But what we've been able to do again with these sort of large scale experiments is put a technology into a population and create interactions that um, amplify people's receptiveness to that idea and then their willingness to adopt it. And what that does isn't just increase the adoption it keeps them interested and engaged with it in the longer term. So a good example of this is any kind of social technology, anything from like telephones to email to social media, which is to say, if someone in your neighborhood is adopting it, maybe no one else has, so you kind of wait to see. But as more and more people adopt it, this convinces you there's some social value to being a member of this, you know, um, of this uh, social community online, let's say. Uh, and then once you join, the same factors that convinced you to join, which is to say there was social currency, you could coordinate with your friends, you communicated with them, that now that everyone's using that space, that's also the reason to stay with it, which is one reason why Facebook has been so engaging for so long, is it has this kind of social coordination aspect to it. Um, and, you know, the interface for Facebook was terrible when it was first, I don't even remember, but it was like hard to use. Um, but the social coordination keeps people stuck in that environment in a positive sense, um, stuck in that space together because none of them can move unilaterally. They all have to move 
together. Um, and that's one of the sort of key features of these sort of features uh, or these um, of these sort of social change processes is that you don't just want people to sort of switch to something new and switch back. You want to switch, you know, groups together. I think that one of the really big changes in thinking that sits behind uh, this book and, and the work I've been doing for the last decade um, is, you know, as I was saying a little while ago that, you know, we tend to think about individuals and individual behavior change. But what that really means is that if we want to change an individual's behavior and they're dependent on all the other people they're interacting with or who are around them, it means that it's actually more effective and even more efficient to shift an entire community at once than it is to just try to sort of target people one at a time. Um, because then it becomes sort of the self-reinforcing behavior that everyone around them is doing and helps to maintain. Uh, and so thinking like that um, is one of the sort of huge advantages of the new science is that we can actually do that in a really effective way. Yeah, that I find that really interesting. The idea that it's, you know, it's easier to change the behavior of a group of people because then they reinforce each other's adoption of whatever this new thing is than to change one person who's then sort of out there on their own, right? So yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, fascinating. So uh, let's say you were, uh, I know you, you outline um, all the different ways that, uh, that, that people can create change, what are the steps they are to take and use some great examples. There's some fantastic uh, stories in the book. But if, if you were advising somebody today, okay, you need to get this idea out or this, you need to create um, a market for this product. Um, let's say it was something like vaccination or, or some uh, medical, um, you know, some uh, public health benefit. Uh, what is your advice? What is the what is the way to go about it that will have the most effect? Yeah, so one of the key concepts here is the, the sort of bridges between communities. Um, and we're seeing this, you know, with obviously with vaccination, but there's lots and lots of examples, but that uh, you see it kind of balkanized, right? There are some communities who are doing it, who are like eager to jump in line, and other communities who are like explicitly resisting. Um, and the question is, well, what's going to make the people who are resisting receptive to this idea? Um, and as you know, we, you know, the U.S. government has been trying influencers, and they're frustrated because influencers aren't working. Um, and it's because influencers are only going to work for the people who are going to do it anyway. And if you're trying to convince people who are suspicious, then a celebrity comes along and they're just suspicious of the celebrity. It doesn't change anything. Um, and so the question is, well, how do we construct bridges from the communities of people who are adopting this to the people who aren't adopting. Um, and that's like one of the things I focus on in the book is exactly how those bridges are constructed and how you can think of this sort of cascade or the spreading process as a process of like growing wide bridges between different communities to create kind of social support and comfort with a new idea and how that sort of cascades from group to group in a way that's um, really interesting and sort of special. This is uh, actually exactly how Black Lives Matter spread. Um, and when you look at, you know, Black Lives Matter in 2020, and you see, you know, the, the George Floyd protests spreading across the country and across the world, um, it's it's easy to think that the explanation for that is, well, there was a video of someone being killed. And that's that's really, you know, that that's what people were reacting to. But in 2014, there was a video of Eric Gardner being choked to death by a police officer and it was put online. And the result was a total of 600 tweets with the term Black Lives Matter, right? So it's not the sort of 
external impetus that triggers this kind of change. It's the construction of supporting networks across communities that allows sort of an idea that seems only relevant to one community to all of a sudden become relevant to lots of different communities. And this is the sort of the function of these sort of wide bridges in the social networks is they help to create relevance across different people's lives. So those wide bridges are connections between different social networks, basically? Yeah, if you look at the, I'll stick with the Black Lives Matter example, because it's it's really um, informative and in talking about a lot of different cases, because um, we have really good data, first of all, and because it's it's striking just how much public opinion and and, and um, activity around it changed. Um, in, in 2014, the, the sort of populations on Twitter who were talking about these issues were disconnected. Um, there was a group of black youth, there are a group of like anarchist type activists, there are a group of like um, um, uh, black leaders, um, there were groups of um, white liberals, and they, but they were, they were not part of the same conversation. And the term Black Lives Matter didn't really exist. It was a kind of a hashtag that was started in um, 2013, but it didn't really have any um, traction. And what happened over the course of the Ferguson protests was that all of a sudden uh, you see the shifting of these network communities online on Twitter. So the data are like super clear that all of a sudden you see celebrities interacting directly with like youth and youth interacting directly with activists in the streets and those groups interacting directly with the sort of white liberal groups. And the conversations become wider and wider and wider. So all of a sudden people start developing a common language. They're talking about this incident in a common way. And what happens is that the subsequent um, deaths that happened during that year, all of a sudden started becoming, and they happened in different communities all around the country. And instead of being one-off events, which they were before 2014, all of a sudden they were instances of this broader, broader event. Everyone was part of the same conversation. Um, and we saw this happen around 2015, where all of a sudden, every single time we had a documentation of a police killing of black youth, it was Black Lives Matter. Um, and then what you saw, it was that that grew and grew and then it grew internationally and it gained support across lots of different countries. And then in 2020, that network was already established. And so when the protests erupted over George Floyd, it just activated this vast network of bridges across communities who, you know, six years ago, it wasn't obvious that any of them would care about something that was happening in Ferguson, Missouri. And now, it, you know, it meant something to everybody. Um, and that's that kind of process is quite powerful. The the best documentation of that was a poll that was done in 2014 asking Americans whether they supported the Black Lives Matter protests. And um, the vast majority of Americans said no, and they didn't even think they were justified. And then in 2020, only six years later, almost 80% of Americans as Democrats and Republicans said they supported the protests and thought they were justified. That's a huge change in national consciousness. And the only explanation for how that happens across so many different communities is the structure of these social networks that supports it. Mm. So you use some really uh, relatable uh, real world examples to illustrate the, the scientific uh, discoveries that you've made and the re what the research shows. And I just wanted to draw on a couple of those because there's some some really interesting stories behind this. But can you share uh, the story of Hamilton, the Broadway musical and other Broadway <laughs> musicals in terms of what that shows about how how things spread? Yeah, that was a fun chapter to write. There's, <laughs> I myself saw Hamilton on Broadway, and it was, you know, a revelation. Um, but it was, uh, it was interesting to sort of dig back into the scholarship there and, and look at how people had thought about um, really creativity 
um, and innovation from a network's point of view. Um, and there were some really nice studies done on the networks that supported the Broadway industry um, historically, looking at how changes from the 1940s through the 1960s through the 1980s and so forth in the network structure among choreographers and directors and so forth actually affected the overall quality of Broadway musicals. And so we tend, the, the natural intuitive thing is to say, well, there are some people who are just good. And when they are there, everything is a hit. And when there's nobody who's good, there's nothing good. And you know, there's lots of data to show that that's not the case, that they're the people who um, were supposedly the greats also had flops and the people who were doing anything interesting, they kind of recombined into new network configurations and all of a sudden it was hit after hit. And so if you look at this trajectory of like the history of Broadway, it mirrors the structure of the social networks within the Broadway, you know, community um, in a really direct way. And I then take that lesson and apply it to thinking about organizations and how we want to kind of structure our, our organizations, our teams, um, our workplaces, so that we are more creative and more effective in the kinds of um, projects we're working on. Yeah. So what would be your advice on, on fostering creativity and building the right kind of team? Yeah. So I talk about it in terms of, again, this infrastructure of wide bridges. Wide bridges is a nice concept that actually has a lot of generality. It applies to communities talking on social media, and it also applies really specifically in a very kind of literal way to you know, the, the teams within an organization and how you would structure the relationships among uh, people working on different projects and people work living um, in different cities and working in different offices. Um, and there's so many ways that we can actually do this where, um, particularly within an organizational context, we actually have a lot of power over people's social networks. If people work on the same hallway, they tend to interact with each other. Um, if they work on the same project teams, they tend to interact with each other. And if they work in the same physical plant, right, they tend to have more opportunities to interact than people who work in different locations. And so people, by virtue of moving them around, by changing their hallway assignments or changing their project teams, the informal network of like who knows whom an organization can actually be shifted on a relatively short time scale within like six months. And that can substantially affect the quality of uh, first of all, the culture and the life there, but the ability to adopt innovations like um, changes. And one of the big issues we've been thinking about is changes in um, gender relations and sexual harassment and, and the policies that are, have been in place but ignored in organizations and ways in which the informal networks can be shifted in a way to create support for that. So uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, the work that you did with the Philadelphia 76ers. One of the things I found really interesting about um, about how you tell some of these stories is that you you share the process of how you do these experiments and it's fascinating to sort of see how you how you conceive of and execute an experiment that leads you to some conclusions that you arrive at i i think that peek behind the curtain is really interesting so can you talk about the experience you had with this nba team uh to kind of understand how talent was evaluated and and scouting was done yeah, it's an interesting story because it kind of relates to something that a lot of us have seen more in the popular news. There was this movie Moneyball that came out um, a couple of years ago, um, and it's a topic that I think a lot of people know about, which is that sports scouting is kind of an old boys club. Um, most people are ex-athletes, and and they sort of have these kind of physical intuitions about you know what players should look like or what their personality should be like, um, and they often fail. Um, and there's no data that would be used to evaluate that and like revise their system year after year. It's just kind of like 
you rely on the guys who know what they're doing and are friendly and everyone kind of gets along with them. And so uh, one of the yeah, sort of innovations- It's actually kind of a funny system because the the, the track record of many of those people is right. terrible. Right. Uh, like it's it's like shooting darts at a board. Um <laughs> And yet there, and yet the the there's so much resistance to change. Everybody who hires those scouts still believes in them. And that's right across the board in professional sports until recently, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's you know that's kind of I'll just to skip ahead. That's kind of the punchline of the of the story about my work with the 76ers is that it's it is like the funny thing about bias, right? Is that our biases often stop us from, you know, making good decisions. They often stop us from even like seeing the information that's right in front of us clearly, but they're nevertheless hard to give up because um, we understand them. They're familiar and they kind of make sense in time, you know, in terms of uh, the, our way of thinking about the world. Um, and so changing bias, even if it's like really obvious that <laughs> their biases are, you know, forcing us to make wrong decisions, changing it is still hard. Um, and so that was the sort of the, the question of like going into working with the 76ers, how I was going to engage with them because they, you know, like all sports organizations have a very hierarchical network. And, you know, I had published a set of results showing that like these kinds of hierarchical network in which there are a few people who are very powerful and everyone else is kind of out on the edges. Those tend to be sort of terrible networks for decision making and just for learning in general. Um, and, you know, networks that are more adaptive, that are more responsive to new information, and then you know, ultimately to better decisions, have a more decentralized structure where kind of everyone has equal power. Um, now, you have to moderate the way the information flows, but if you can do it effectively, which online is incredibly easy to do, then you can sort of make strong predictions about how information flow and about how social connections will lead to like really effective problem solving on a very fast time scale. We're talking like 10 to 15 minutes. You can like shift the quality of a decision that's made. Um, and this is what, you know, seeing some of that research is what got the Sixers in interested. They were like, wow, this is exciting. Can we use this? Um, and I, uh, I knew, you know, what what the way to do it was, I didn't know if they'd be willing to do, to do it because, you know, it goes against the grain. But um, luckily, the the people who had buying on this were fairly high up, and they said, you know, let's go ahead. And so we got all the coaches together, and I put them into this. It was during scouting season, so the scout, you know, new players were flying in. Um, and I talk about this in the book, but basically, I was sworn to secrecy because they didn't want in the media knowing they were like looking at these different players. Um, so I, you know, couldn't say who they were, but, um, I basically went to the, you know, the sports complex and, and they were doing all the drills. Um, and then I just had a kind of a quiz for the coaches, which was a, you know, a, a social media app that we built and, um, the coaches would sort of guess what the shooting percentage was going to be in the afternoon, uh, three point shooting drill. And, um, then we would take that information and then let them do this kind of social learning process in this, in this online network, um, and then get the answer. Um, and then they would go back to work. And what was interesting is we did this a couple, you know, a couple weeks in a row. And at first the coaches were exactly what you'd expect. They were, you know, they thought it was ridiculous. And they yeah, wanted why to, am I doing they this? To do yeah. Their job. yeah. And they were, you know, they, they were, you know, lots of jokes, right. Making fun of it. And, um, and, you know, they're like, who's this, you know, who's this network scientist sitting here talking things with to do. Um, but uh, after the first week, their disposition changed sort of uh, interestingly and surprisingly towards the positive. I mean, first of all, they kind of got that it was a game, which they thought was fun to like guess what's going to happen in the afternoon. Um, they got that there was a right answer. Like there was like, the data were going to be collected. We were going to know what the three-point uh, shooting percentage was. Um, so that, you know, the competitive people, you want to get the answer right. And that's kind of fun. Um, but then also they saw that, you know, 
oftentimes in their meetings, the people with the power controlled, you know, the decision. And what they saw happening in these networks was like the decision would kind of shift. You could sort of see the updating as you were playing um, in directions that went maybe in their direction, even though they were a low, a low power person in the, in the network um, because of how we'd structured the online community. And, um, and I think this sort of woke people up to the fact that all of a sudden they were having influence in this, in this topic that they didn't think they would ever have influence in. Um, and that made them more receptive. And they felt, and I talk about this in the book, the sense of empowerment, which again, when you're talking to like ex-basketball players, you don't really think that there's an issue of empowerment. But, um, but I think that they had felt like they weren't, you know, as, as heard and, uh, and they felt genuinely kind of engaged in the process, um, which was something that I never expected because I didn't think of it that way. I thought it more of as like a, a problem solving strategy, not an empowerment strategy. Um, but it was nice to see that and to sort of learn a little bit more ethnographically about what the experience is like for people sort of in these organizations to have this kind of opportunity. Um, and of course, the result is that we did significantly improve their estimates of the three point shooting percentage. Um, and that was where, you know, the it really lands as they started thinking about what, what, what are all the different domains across we can apply, you know, across which yeah. we could apply these ideas like the num you know, number of minutes players have um, that the recovery time before they go back into games like just there's so many things that are basically dominated by the traditional decision making structure they realized they could use this strategy for a lot of different problems. So the last question I would ask you, this has been fascinating and there's so many different directions we could take this, but uh, you know, there, there are many, uh, many themes, many discoveries, uh, many lessons. Is there one thing that you really wanna leave people with uh, as they think about their own decision-making or how they can uh, influence others, how they can create change in the world if that's what they strive to do? Yeah, I would say that this this point I was talking about earlier with regard to uh, bridges between communities, um, it's something that when I talk about it in the book, I talk about it, you know, both in terms of, you know, these these patterns we can see, you have like redundant ties across communities, but also in terms of this sense of relevance. Um, and that, I think, is one of the biggest take home lessons, which is that when you're thinking about people changing their behavior, you have to know that whether they understand it or not, they're looking for relevant peers. And so you have to understand who the relevant peers are. And this, you know, we can talk about this in the example of vaccination or, you know, um, in, in any of the contexts where people are evaluating sort of, you know, behavior or belief change. And you have to kind of imagine creating ties to the people who they're going to listen to and bringing that sort of set of relationships into your kind of inclusive network. And then imagining it just not stopping there. But then saying, well, then, and then what's the next community that we want to reach in the next community? And a large part of my work is, and this is something that I've, I've talked a lot about in the public health space, is one of the big mistakes that we've made in public health is um, we've tried to trick people into doing what we think they should do. Right. A lot of people are using nudges these days. Right. And the, yep. the whole idea is people make these sort of cognitive mistakes, but can we like get them to make the right decision? Um, and I feel like it's really short sighted because what it doesn't do is change their thinking at all. What it does is get them to make this decision. But then when the next, like if you get them to get vaccinated, fine. But when the next 
public health crisis comes up, whether it's obesity or something else, then you're kind of back where you started. You have to trick them again to doing that other thing. Yeah, you're um, not establishing and, trust, right? For one thing. You're not establishing trust. Yeah. And, and, and fundamentally, they still have those same biases in place. Yeah. You just kind of outsmarted them for this one task, right? And so the question is, well, how can you shift bias, right? How can you actually change the way that they're perceiving the information that's available so that instead of just tricking them into doing something you want, you can actually have a more nuanced and engaged, you know, relationship. And this is where like examples like Black Lives Matter stand out. Like no one was tricked into joining Black Lives Matter. Their thinking changed as a result of, of relevant wide bridges being created. And I think that that change in thinking is really important for any successful initiative. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, and it really, uh, really opens your mind to the blind spots that we all have and, and the misconceptions we have about how ideas uh, spread um, and how the world changes. Uh, Damon, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today and congratulations on a terrific book. Thanks, Mark. That was Mark Sutcliffe in conversation with Damon Santola on his acclaimed new book, Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local, independent booksellers. Our spring season runs through to the end of the month, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. And thank you for listening. Thank you.